0: Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in Chapter 5 of Luke. And before I get started, I just want to make a a comment here. Um, I had no idea this was going to happen with John and Naomi. Um, So... If it seems in theme, it's because the Lord orchestrated it. I was going to do a different message this morning, and then um, I was reminded that the Lord had prompted me to do this message this morning. So I threw away the message. Well, I didn't throw it away, but I threw it to the side. The message I was going to do to come back to the one that I'd originally thought I should do. So here we go. Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, Verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles. Into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turned to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made him a great feast at his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Well, this message this morning is about the calling of Levi and discerning the voice of God in life, work, and career. We've been talking about the voice of God all weekend. One of the things I said the first night was the voice of God can call people. And so can we put the uh, slide up on the screen now? There it is. So this is the calling of St. Matthew. It's a famous painting. Uh, done by the Baroque painter, Caravaggio, And I'm using the picture as a visual to help frame the conversation this morning. So on, in this picture, we have uh, shadows of light and darkness. This is characteristic of Baroque period art. It's a specific technique called chiaroscuro, but we're not here to study art history. Um, but that mixture, that interplay of light Of light and dark speaks of how calling emerges in the midst of light and darkness, in the midst of confusion, in the mix of life itself. Things are not always as clear as we might like them to be. We might say they're not always linear. And in this picture, Levi and four of his assistants are counting the days take, if you want to say it that way when suddenly Jesus appears, and you know it's Jesus only if you pay close attention, and you have to watch, but it's over on the right, and you see just dimly a halo over his head, which tells us that sometimes the voice of God is not strong, which I made mention of in my teaching. We might say his divinity is seen dimly. And two of his assistants in this picture, and if you look, you'll see who they are, they're completely unaware of the presence of deity. Or maybe they're refusing to acknowledge him, but either way, they're not engaged with the fact that God has walked into the room. And two others draw back in shock, realizing that their collective lives are about to change forever. And Jesus' feet are turned, and he's ready to walk out the door. By the way, if you cannot see the halo just to point out so you know who you're looking at, you've got to go to the furthest individual on the right and go straight up and the halos on the boundary of the light and dark, just below the line. And so in a moment, Levi will be gone, summoned to a greater life, and yet one that is not divorced from the very gritty reality that the picture itself portrays. And his calling is made all the more powerful and still subtle and not completely unambiguous by the um, way Jesus' finger and wrist are sort of hanging down like this. If you want to use fancy collegiate language, you would say the languorous droop of his semaphore wrist. But anyway, Peter seeks to calm with a hand that is both more firm and more commanding than that of Jesus, And in this, we see the juxtaposition of divine invitation and human insistence. They both begin with I-N, but that's where the similarity ends. Because, as we know, Peter was a man of passion. And if you know the story of Levi, I read a chunk of it, but his calling comes after the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John. He's the fifth disciple who gets called, and he is often overlooked. And in the center of the picture, we see Levi asking the proverbial, who me? You know this when any time you call someone out of a crowd, if you do that kind of ministry, or when people sense that God may be summoning them to something and they say, who me? And so it's a question filled with shock, maybe disbelief, possibly some angst, maybe wonder, and all of them are balled up together at once. So we'll just leave the picture up there while we share this morning so you can ponder what's going on in this picture as we talk about Levi now Levi was a man I would say who needed just a little bit more proof he was a believer of sorts he was intrigued by what he saw going on in the life of Jesus but he needed a little more proof he was maybe a little more skeptical he was a little hardened possibly in his sensibilities and in the end he got the proof he needed And he got a calling that was as unmistakable as the one that Peter and Andrew and James and John had gotten. But it was a different kind of calling, and it came very differently. Most of us would like calling to be simple and clear, and it seldom is. More commonly, it emerges in the frenzied tumult of daily life without a warning or even even as much as an owner's manual. It just comes, and you're forced to respond or react So a name change occurs, and suddenly Levi becomes Matthew. And we find ourselves like him in this picture asking, Who me? How did this happen? So Levi is a type of the next wave of disciples. Levi is a type of the now wave of God. Because most people who are finding these callings these days, as they hear the voice summoning them, They're being pulled out of the midst of something and they oftentimes struggle to discern clearly and they may not feel quite ready or worthy. Now, we talked about the voice of God this weekend. And so even as I've said that as kind of introductory remarks, do you hear the voice? Because most of us long for greater clarity in discerning the voice of God in our lives or our work or our career Or maybe our ministry and so I want to share this morning six keys to clarifying the voice of God when it comes six keys so when it comes hopefully you'll be able to discern it so the first question is this one what on earth is God doing now this deals very specifically with the knowledge of God and John Calvin famously said In the institutes of the Christian religion, true true and principal knowledge consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That is to say, we cannot know ourselves without knowing God, and we cannot know God without an understanding of ourselves. So it starts with this knowledge of God and the question, what on earth is God doing? Now, in the story of Levi that we read out of Luke, and there are parallel accounts in Mark chapter 2 and in Matthew chapter 9, you would expect that he would write about his own calling when he wrote his gospel. In the parallel accounts, we see this. Something was going on in Capernaum. Something was afoot. A carpenter had come to town and had settled there. And everybody knew that this carpenter was there, but now this carpenter had healed a paralyzed man and the town was buzzing. Now, Capernaum was about the size of a suburban high school. So everybody would have been aware of what was going on. This was extraordinary news. It was exciting, but it was unsettling all at the same time. And one thing was sure it was about to upset the status quo. When calling emerges, it upsets the status quo. Jesus said this My father is always at work and I too am working. I'm quoting John 5 17. Well, God is himself a worker, and he takes great delight in his work. It says that he saw all that he had made, and it was good. Well, Levi saw it, too, and he was conflicted. He was conflicted because he had a profession, and it wasn't a particularly noble one. It was a good-paying one. But being a Roman tax collector meant that, among other things, you were a turncoat. You'd aligned with this, this overlord state against your own people and he was being summoned out of a decidedly different occupation than the first four disciples had. They were fishermen. They knew something about catching fish, cleaning fish, and bringing fish to market. They understood supply chain. They got it when Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. They understood it was more than catching. But Levi, he's used to sitting in his tax booth, And in a way, he's kind of excluded from society. He's been sitting on the edge for a while, watching it all happen. But when Jesus called him, he invited him to join him in his work. And so with this, we understand that our callings, our work, whatever it may be, it's a participation in the work of God. So, for example, a farmer doesn't actually grow anything. A farmer puts seed in the ground, the farmer may create the environment so the seed can grow by dealing with weeds and whatnot. But to mix metaphors, a farmer is a midwife. And this is what we are as we serve the Lord and go about our own lives and our own careers and our own callings. We are midwives with God, helping, hopefully, if we're aligned with him, to bring about God's work in the earth. God is looking for co-laborers. That's what the summons represents. Another example, a doctor is a participant in the healing work of God, but any doctor worth his or her salt will tell you, I don't heal anybody. I don't know how to heal anybody. The body does what it does. So a doctor understands something of how God heals people. He may facilitate the process, but he knows in the end, he's not the one who does the healing. So to facilitate the work of God means being a student of God and of his ways and coming to, as I like to say, understand the ways of the Holy Spirit so that no matter in what career we are engaged, no matter what work we do, we are able to partner with him. We could say develop a lifestyle of walking with God. But that somehow sells it short. I'm, I'm suggesting that in hearing the calling, hearing the voice, we become engaged in the work of God in the world. And so to discern what God is doing, ask this question. It's an important one. What captures your imagination about what God does? Because what captures your imagination is probably a good indication of where God is calling you. Now, this is a lot bigger than your hobbies, but it certainly could include them because hobbies point us in a direction, the things that we love to do, and more particularly the things that we do anyway without getting paid to do them and without any requirement to do them. So there was something about Levi as he saw the buzz around this healing of the paralytic man. It stirred him. He's living a prosperous life, very prosperous. Jesus called another tax collector later. His name was Zacchaeus. And when he called Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus said, "'Half of everything I have I give away.'" And I restore to anyone I've defrauded fourfold. What's the clear implication? He had a lot of money and could do do so. And where did he get it? The very things that he was speaking of. This was the nature of life as a tax collector. And so here is this man, Levi. He's co-opted to the system, and he's got a prosperous, and we could say, conventional upper-class existence, one that you would not readily upend or disturb. But it was in his head... And maybe it was getting under his skin, maybe even into his wallet, since his tax booth was right there beside the sea, it says. And he may well have been the tax collector who oversaw the activities of those four fishermen who had been called by Jesus as he walked down the beach a few days earlier. Most people's vocational imagination, that's to say what are they going to do with themselves when they grow up, is underdeveloped and it results in the screening out of wider possibilities. Simply put, they fall into ruts. Now in the picture that's behind me, Levi's two assistants on the left appear to have fallen prey to this. They're all about the task and they don't realize what's going on. You know, they were in the same town that Levi was in as he's collecting taxes, as the buzz and the swirl about the healing of this paralytic comes to Levi's ears. Two of them are tone deaf, but there's something of what's happening in the healing of the paralytic that grabs Levi and begins to pull him. And then Jesus calls him aloud. So we want to widen our vocational imagination to allow for the expanse of God's work without, say, privileging one kind of work over against another. Now, most famously in church life, and this has gone on for centuries, people do this when they say, if you're truly going to serve God, you better be in the ministry. There are myriad ways to serve God without being in the ministry. I'm thinking of a woman I know and her husband out in Western Australia, a little bit south of Perth, and they've had a prosperous computer business for many years, They're multimillionaires, self-made, but they're in the ministry. She preaches all the time, and they run an orphanage in Cambodia that takes care of 5,000 kids. They pay for all of it out of their own pocket. They built the orphanage. They fund the orphanage out of the proceeds of their business. I would say that's a calling, but they're not in the ministry because neither of them is reverend so-and-so. Many Asian-American groups or Asian-Australian groups have limited vocational imagination because they want their children to become, well, engineers or doctors or lawyers. And there's no room in that mindset for a tradesman's vocation or even as much as an academic vocation, let alone a religious one. And so just as I was encouraging you to open your ears to the wider ways that the voice of God comes as I was teaching this weekend, I would encourage you to do that even now with your own lives, no matter in what phase of life you may be, because if you didn't catch it, what happened to Levi, he's in midstream. This is not just some, you know, 15-year-old trying to figure out what am I going to do when I grow up. This is a 30 or 40 or maybe a 50-year-old man who's got it all and he still knows he hasn't grown up yet. And there's something of what happened that begins to bother him, as I've already suggested in it it becomes the premise upon which he can now hear the word of God. Well, the second question is similar to the first one. If the first one is, what in the world is God doing? The second question is, who am I? And this pertains to the knowledge of ourselves. Now, this is a highly underdeveloped area for many of us, but calling is often found where the intersection of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves occurs. So back to Levi, a miracle had occurred in the vicinity of Levi's tax booth, and everybody in town was talking about it. This act of God hadn't yet intersected Levi's world, but he knew about it. And like the slow dripping of water, or maybe if you like better, the bursting of a dam, it was about to do so. He'd seen four fishermen with their prosperous business get up and leave it all to go on this adventure with Jesus. And Levi must have been intrigued, maybe envious, possibly not, but for sure intrigued at what Peter and Andrew and Zebedee's sons had done, becoming Jesus' companions. But after all, he had a prosperous business to manage and Roman overlords to keep happy. And in fact, to walk away from this could be, well, let's just say expensive, And it may be expensive in ways that were not monetary. The Romans didn't take kindly to those who did not continue in their faithful service to the Republic. Well, besides, what does tax collecting have to do with working miracles? And so Levi probably couldn't even see a path to a life of miracles and service, but he underestimated himself. And so our greatest impediment to fulfilling God's call in our lives is when we take stock of ourselves and stop wishing we were someone else and then maybe shaking our fist at God because we are not who we wish we were or who we think we wish we were. This is the nature of the human condition. We sort of get inside of ourselves and it all gets tangled up as we second guess anyway. And so to accept the voice of God in our world, to accept our vocation and our calling is to come to a place of being free of wishing we were someone else and we accept who we are. I'm, I'm taking that quotation from the writings of St. Catherine of Siena. And this means that for this to occur, we have to repent of and lay down the sin of envy, which in classical Christian theology is one of the seven deadly sins. People most of the time say pride is the deadliest. Well, if it is, then envy would be the second most deadly. And it's even enumerated as one of those that needs to be addressed in none other than the Ten Commandments. Now, we live our days, many of us, envying other people, burning with a kind of anger and a certain resentment towards those who are different from us And we think that we should be like them. But as Kirk pointed out, David Wagner posted on Instagram the other day, if the grass seems greener on the other side, maybe it's time to water your own grass. Which might mean, take a serious look at the sin of envy in your own life. It's not one we talk about much in the church. We like to talk about sins of the external life, not the internal life. But it's the ones of the internal life that will eat you alive. So the key question in diagnosing ourselves is this one. What matters to me more than anything else? That's the question you want to ask. What matters to me more than anything else? Now, it's similar to the question about what captures our imagination, but it's a little different. It's more than caring about something. It's caring in a way that we feel drawn to engage with it. We feel summoned. We feel called. And most people... In the fourth wave, river stream, vineyard-type churches are in them because somewhere, somehow, along the way, they experienced something that they would attribute to God or they heard about something miraculous that they would attribute to God or they saw a prophetic word given and they knew it was God. But whatever, they had that intersection of the divine and the human, as I've already suggested, and they're looking for something more For themselves they want to go deeper with that divine encounter and these people knew encountering God might change them in their world but they're willing to take that risk they want to make a difference they want to get involved I would submit to you that's in somewhere deep down in the genetic code of the vineyard movement and so here's the subsidiary question that goes right with that it's not the same question but it's also important what is it that makes you angry now, vocation cannot be fueled by anger. Let's be clear about that. But anger can help define vocation because it shows us where we are most particularly sensitive to wrongdoing and injustice. And oftentimes that area of sensitivity is the area to which God is drawing us. What ultimately fuels vocation, of course, it is what is good, noble, excellent, worthy of praise in a particular discipline but anger can be a diagnostic i'm reminded of the story of the of the man who had leprosy he comes to jesus in mark chapter 1 and he kneels down in front of him and he says lord if you are willing you can make me clean and our most of our bibles say moved with compassion jesus said i am willing be healed and he is healed but there's a manuscript tradition in the in the How do I say this succinctly on a Sunday morning? In the various manuscripts of the New Testament we have, there's a whole branch family of manuscripts that are all clustered together that say not Jesus was moved with compassion, but Jesus was moved with anger. Now, he wasn't angry at the man. He was angry at the man's condition. He was angry at the distress and the bondage the man was in, and that itself was a manifestation of the compassion that he had. And this is why I say pay attention to what makes you angry, but don't let the anger be the fuel you run on. So maybe another way of asking this same question is, what am I most passionate about? Passionate enough to get off my backside and do something about it. That would be a way of discerning calling. Here's the third question in discerning calling. So we've talked about what is God doing, and we've talked about knowledge of ourselves Here's the third one. In what stage of life do I find myself? Now, stage of life matters very, very much. We discern and engage with our calling from God differently at different times in life, and we also draw upon our life experiences as we age because of the way God himself is. The fancy word for it is he is perspicacious, which really means he wastes nothing. John Wimber used to say, until a man is 50 years old, he really has nothing to say from a pulpit anyway. That might have been overstating it. But there is a truth that as we age, if we're walking with the Lord, we deepen. And many of the dots we couldn't connect in our 30s or 40s, we can't actually connect in our 50s or 60s or 70s, and on it goes. So when we talk about the development of our lives, here's what happens. During the teen years and the twenties adolescence and early adulthood the number one question we're struggling with and trying to figure out is will we leave home and differentiate will we become something other than our mother and father and with it will we take adult responsibility for our lives now that may not sound very spiritual but i assure you it is very spiritual because many of the sins people fall into are sins and they take them out They, they literally knock them off the course and what they were meant to be never happens because many are called and few are chosen. They take themselves out because they've not successfully accomplished this business of, will I take responsibility for myself? And in traditional Western society, and I emphasize traditional because the West has changed, and is changing. Most commonly, this happened through trade school or university, depending on, you know, what you were targeting. And it forces and it enforces, so it it creates and then maintains the separation between children and their parents. This is a necessary stage of growth. And as we grow, we become weaned from our daily contact and dependency upon mom and dad, and we find ourselves... And when that does not happen, our sense of development and calling is arrested. Now, if you're paying attention to the wider conversation that's going on out there in the church, everyone's talking about what? My identity as a son or daughter of God. And everyone's talking about my destiny. Why are they so balled up about this? Because this that I'm describing has not happened. We want it to happen. It's a normal and healthy thing. That's not to say it's easy. No mama wants to watch her daughter or son go off to school or move out. And dad may not either, but usually dads manage the emotional a little bit differently. But it needs to happen. And today we have a whole crop of people. I guess I could point to you guys, but but, but there are people that I run into as I travel who they are in an arrested stage of development. They're still in that teen and 20 period, even if their body is 30 or 40 years old. I'm thinking of a woman I knew. She was a vineyard person, one of the most gifted worship leaders I've met ever in my life. I actually wrote a letter to Bill Johnson on her behalf. I said, we need to introduce her to Jesus culture. She was that good. Did I say she was a vineyard person? And she had a problem. She was a woman with... Um, High needs. Not that that's bad, but it didn't have an outlet. And she started dating non-Christian men. And I warned her. I had a word from the Lord. The Lord woke me up in the middle of the night. And I warned her. Well, today she's a single mom. And her calling is on the rocks. That's what can happen. But do you know what drove her into all that? I was having conversation with her, trying to be some sort of a mentor or something. And she said to me, everywhere I go in Christian churches, I meet men who are men in body only, but emotionally and mentally they are little boys. They're still holding on to mama's apron strings, and I want a man. And so she had to go outside the church to find a man. And, well, he was a man all right. He did what men do. Did not end well. But there was the root of the problem, was this thing about this arrested development. We do not want to leave people at whatever stage of life still in that differentiating stage that goes with the teens and the 20s. And by the way, lest you think um, women are exempt from this, there's a comparable problem of Christian women who are keening, fearful, and manipulative. It's not the same problem, but it goes on. And we have to grow beyond that so we don't get what we seek through those means. So if you are in this stage of life or you passed it already, but emotionally you're still there, embrace leaving the nest. Embrace the adventure. Know that God is with you. That's what Levi had to do. He had to get up from that tax booth and leave the life he had known to embrace the life he would know. And for a lot of people, that's hard to do. Second, moving into adulthood, the 30s and 40s. Will we recognize that we have limitations and we cannot actually become all things? Now, this may be limited by our intelligence, our training, our giftedness. There could be limitations. But even more than that, can we and will we focus? Will we become expert in something? And so what do you become expert in? Well, commonly something that captures your imagination. Go back to point two, but let's keep going. So in this stage, we stop wishing we were somebody other than who we are, And we develop the skills and the capacities to master the craft to which we are called. In some ways, it's like what was going on in the teens and 20s, but it's more nuanced because we take inventory. And we ask ourselves, what did we learn in that period of life, meaning the teens and 20s, that we're now going to hone and develop and refine now? And can we accept that there are some things we won't become? You know, for example, in baseball, Not that you play a lot of it here, but it works. Players cannot learn to hit a fastball at age 30. If you don't know how to hit a fastball by your mid-20s, you will never make it in Major League Baseball because the fastball is the... There are other pitches, but that's the baseline pitch. And if you haven't learned to do it, there's something about the development of the brain, the neuroplasticity that goes on, the hand-eye coordination. It'll be too late. And this is why... Baseball players who make the majors, they start young and they grow up through it. So if you're in your 30s and 40s, ask yourself what God has already built into you in terms of his calling upon you. And here's how we become expert. It's not very glamorous. We do something again and again and again, a thousand times over and then more besides. Sometimes people say to me, why do you see so many people healed? And I say, it's because I've prayed for hundreds of thousands of people. People say, how does so-and-so you know, get those prophetic words? They've given thousands of prophetic words. And so this is something we don't like very much either because it can seem routine and monotonous. Putting our hand to the plow. How exciting is it to walk behind an ox all day long, going back and forth, up and down the fields? But that's what Jesus said, put your hand to the plow. So to become experts, we need mentors because when we start out, we are only apprentices and for every vocation and calling there is a window we do not want to miss this is why we need to get our heads in the game this is why if you're a parent or a grandparent and you've watched your children or grandchildren start to make bad choices in their teens and twenties you panic because you realize there's a window and ultimately it will close you know you there's a little bit of play in that i get it but but ultimately it will close and so we don't want to miss that window and in answering That question, we often have to let the dead bury their own dead as we move forward to experience the kingdom of God and take our place in it. Levi did this when he left his tax booth. And Caravaggio's painting behind me makes it clear he would never become a worker of miracles by counting money. He had to get up from his table to go and follow the expert who would teach him to become the worker of miracles. Now, in our later years, we could call them the golden years or senior years, but these are the 50s and 60s and beyond. These are the years that John Wimber famously said, until a man is 50 years old, he has nothing to say from a pulpit. I would just say this, if you study the way employers, I mean high-level employers that you know re- engage search firms like Spencer Stewart and Comparable the way they think about this, they know that the most productive years of a person's life are in their 50s and 60s, provided their health holds. And even their 70s, it's just that these days we tend to push people out of the workforce. But let me tell you, in the kingdom of heaven, you don't need to retire at 70, do you, David? But in, our, in these later years, these golden years, we let go of the levers of power. And we recognize that the most powerful influence we have is the power of blessing, which is the power to summons. It's the power of influence rather than of control and domination. There it is, right there. That's why those later years are so important. So older men bless younger men. Older women bless younger women. And when Paul says, and Kirk quoted this, fan into flame that it gifted is in you through the laying on of my hands, He is actually referring to something bigger than impartation, although impartation is unquestionably present. He's also saying that Timothy cannot fulfill his calling without getting the blessing of Paul. And those who are older in the craft bless the younger so they can follow us. And so the key question in this time of life is, do the younger men have older men in their lives whom they bless, empower, and encourage? Can they name them by name? And similarly with women. Paul even says the older women should teach the younger. And so these golden years, these upper years are pivotal, and the fullness of our career and vocation will have expression in empowering those who are blessed by us so they succeed. Now, if you think about people that we think of, say, as shrewd CEOs, or very, very gifted military commanders. They are not doing much other than, in a sometimes highly nuanced way, giving guidance to those who are a little below them. Because they've reached the time in life where they've accumulated knowledge, and their people skills are such that people want to follow them and be influenced by them. We want to grow into these kinds of people. I point this out, even though most of the people in the room aren't at this age, because if we don't know what we're aiming at, we'll never hit it. Okay, question four, what are the circumstances in which we find ourselves? Because vocation is always for a particular situation or season. As the book of Esther says, who knows but if you were born for the time of this, Esther 4.14. So the circumstances in which we find ourselves create natural boundaries and opportunities. And so calling is always found in the actual historical context and in settings, not in circumstances as we wish They were. We must become realists and deal with the circumstances as they are. We are not called to be Ferris Bueller, if you remember Ferris Bueller's day off. We might even say that vocation finds us just as, back to Levi, Jesus approached him and saw him at his tax booth in the Scripture or in Carbaggio's painting at his counting table. It dispenses with the nostalgia for a different time. We aren't called to live in the past, but to embrace the future. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a, a lecturer I heard uh, talking one time, and he said, now, hear me, there's no singing Britannia rules the waves. And, you know, people kind of snickered as you did. And he said, the reason there's no singing Britannia rules the waves is Britannia has not ruled the waves for a hundred years or more. But once upon a time, people could sing that. It does us no good to dwell in the past of what happened in the great years of John Wimber or Lonnie Frisbee or the latter rain outpouring or you name who you want. It's it's good to pay honor to those people and it's good to draw from them. But God has called us into a future that is bigger and brighter than what we left behind. The scripture even says, do not say why are the former days better than the current days for such questions do not come from wisdom. So we need to embrace the times in which we live, even though they're uncertain, even though they're challenging, even though they may be threatening, and know that God is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we say vocation finds us. It dispenses with nostalgia. So we sometimes want to say, if only my circumstances were different, but we might do better to say my circumstances aren't different, so I'm going to thrive where I am. And so we come to the place where we lay aside our regrets about what could have been, and we become stark realists filled with faith. So calling and vocation are lived out in the life we have, not the life we would like to have. Back to the Ferris Bueller comment. This is precisely, not sort of, this is precisely how two slaves... By name, Joseph and Daniel rose to become second ruler in two of the world's greatest empires. They were in their environment that they did not choose. And they leaned into God and they said, I will become all I can in God by using what God has given me. And in the end, they were elevated. A man's gift makes way for him is what the scripture says. And this is also how Levi was summoned from a tax booth sitting by the sea. And so with the calling of Peter and Andrew and the sons of Zebedee, perhaps his very franchise was itself in question, collecting tax revenue off of their fishing business. As they took up their callings, he took up his. And so we see our reality through the possibility of grace. Can we name our circumstances aloud? Can we have a hopeful realism about the circumstances in our lives? God is still at work for all things or in all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, in reality, this is at the very root of what Jesus meant when he uh, says he did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He came to call people who have flawed existences, maybe flawed by their own actions, may be flawed by the actions of others that have affected them. But this leaves aside all possibility for becoming Eeyores or drama queens as we wallow in self-pity. And we have to be careful that if we find people who uh, were in our circumstances because we can act as though we no longer need to discern. All right, number five. Does our understanding of of vocation incorporate the cross? Now, this is a peculiar bugbear for me because so many... I've been through kind of two moves of God now, maybe even three if you count Calvary Chapel, but I watched the vineyard kind of ascend and crescendo. It's still going on, but I remember it in the glory years, and I'm now watching what's going on with this newer move of God through some of the other streams of the church. And the thing that always intrigues me is all the prophetic words that seem to come is everybody's going to have an intergalactic ministry. Nobody ever thinks about the local ministry. Nobody ever thinks about just maybe working in their own local parish or their own context. And you see this in the new apostolic movement that's coming about where everybody wants to plant a church and as soon as it gets to 50, they leave leave that one in the charge of some pastor person and now they're going to go out on the road And they're going to be apostolic. And I think this is a path fraught with difficulty. The cross is not an afterthought. It is not an aberration of how God works. It is the divine pattern of how we live out God's work. The book of Revelation tells us the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. And with it, we understand that there will be suffering and difficulty and challenge and hardship and setback. Not that I want to be a downer here, but... Don't think for a minute that as you embrace your calling, it's just going to be a free ride. And a lot of times, people think that it will be. And when the hardship comes, then they get frustrated. Well, Luke tells us that when Levi got up from his booth, he left everything. And so even in the celebration that we see in Matthew's party, described more fully in Matthew chapter 9, which we did not read, there is still loss. There is still the knowing of what is being left behind, of the comforts and conveniences that are no longer there, of the favor of the Roman officials, possibly the certainty of death. Matthew, by the way, did die a martyr preaching in Persia some years later. Jesus says, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Not live in the green room and get the five-star dinner and then fly in first class as you go to the five-star hotel. But a lot of what people think of as ministry these days, particularly if you're paying attention to social media, you would be forgiven for thinking that that's what it's all about and craving it because in so many words you become a lesser god. Jesus said, "Take up your cross and follow me." Vocation is not vacation. It's the place where we see the life of Christ forged in our souls and his power released as a result. And many think Ministry will be a more pleasant or easier life, but it is seldom that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died under the hands of Adolf Hitler, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Jesus summons a man, he calls him to come and die. So we are not exempted from the cross, and we find meaning in the difficulties and suffering of life. Finding that meaning as part of the joy of answering the calling. Paul says it this way, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you in order that life would be released in others, 2 Corinthians 4, 12. And so the cross will intersect every vocation, not just being a preacher. There is a cruciform mark upon every calling and it cannot be avoided. And so it is more valuable to decide up front where and how are we going to embrace the cross rather than seeking to avoid it. And the sooner we do that, the quicker the death will be and the pain will end. So what cross have you been asked and built to bear? Sometimes the cross is intrinsic to your vocation. For example, all politicians, no matter who they are, no matter how popular they may be, no matter how powerful they are, they will eventually leave office and then they are powerless. There may be a halo effect, an afterglow that follows them, and people still adulate them and have them give speeches, but they no longer have that power in their hands. Every business person knows somewhere along the line they're going to lose money. They go into business to make money, but if you understand the way it really works, you will lose money, and sometimes a lot of it, sometimes so much that you'll go bankrupt. Christian leaders will be tagged with disappointment and anger that people carry toward God and their parents. This just goes with being a pastor, right, Kirk? Sometimes the cross is extrinsic to the vocation, where we have to answer the call in the midst of our circumstances. For example, a single mother who maybe feels the calling of God to be an artist, she will carry a cross that includes time constraints, monetary constraints, and separation from her child or children as she needs the time in the studio to do the work that she's called to do as an artist. And so in all these situations, we have to bear the cross quietly, winsomely, and joyfully. Most people crucified in the Roman Empire died screaming blasphemies. Think of the two thieves on either side of Jesus. And so we cut the nerve of self-pity and experience the joy of Christ in the midst of the suffering of life. And so to embrace the cross is to become courageous. Last question, and we're short on time, so let's get through this. What do you fear? Levi was likely afraid of want. He was likely afraid of disappointing his Roman handlers. As I already suggested, it might have cost him his life to answer that voice. It ultimately did, but not there, not then. It happened in Persia. So Levi, even though he appeared to have a pretty good life, he was actually not free, even though he appeared to be well-situated. That's an important distinction to recognize as you think about what it is that you fear. You know, Paul said to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, and so he summoned him to be a shepherd and evangelist. In the story of Mary and Martha, Martha comes from the kitchen. She's upset with Mary, and she triangulates. She says to the Lord of the universe, tell Mary to get up and help me instead of sitting at your feet. But Jesus' response to Martha was this, you are anxious, you are fearful of many things. Martha, what is your fear that is keeping you from embracing the life that Mary has? So this fear thing, it's a diagnostic. You might remember that when I was teaching the first night of the mini conference, I talked about fear being one of the things that will block the voice of God. So I'm now putting it in play in the matter of calling. And so perhaps the greatest Threat to the fulfillment of our vocation is not external, but internal. And that's why I say, what do you fear? Or maybe more pointedly, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid of obscurity? Are you afraid of hunger? Are you afraid of homelessness? What keeps you from saying yes and leaving your tax booth? Because everybody's got a tax booth. It just may have a different title on the top of it. And fear keeps us from discerning the voice of God. Or, alternatively, it may cause us to veer from the path God has put us on as those fears overtake us and pull us in another direction. You can actually see this in the life of Peter the Apostle. Right after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter says what? I'm going fishing. And he was in Jerusalem for the crucifixion, but when we see the scene where he goes fishing, he's on the Sea of Galilee. That's more than 200 kilometers away. And they didn't have a motorway to get on. It took him days of intentional travel to get there. And Jesus comes and pulls him out of the boat yet again. Follow me again, and I will make you a fisher of men. The summons comes to Peter in the same way. And so in the end, we have to embrace, take ownership, responsibility for our own vocation. If we don't, we will flinch, we will veer off course from following God as we were meant to, and I might even say uniquely created and shaped to. What Kirk does, you can't do. But what you do, he can't do. This is the nature of it. So no one can do it for us. Our friends can help us with encouragement, questions, maybe the occasional rebuke. But perhaps that's why Levi had his friends come to his party. They were there to affirm in him what he had known all along was in himself. And as a tax collector, he was being untrue to himself. So do you have someone who will help you get along? It might be someone half a generation older or more or one or two peers But these people will give you time, and they will refuse to flatter you. Well, let's wrap this thing up and and land the plane. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they were already confirmed in their calling to follow Jesus when Levi received his. He was a middle-class administrator of some sort and a turncoat living on the edge of Jewish society. He was not like Peter and Andrew and James and John, a tradie, a blue-collar Jewish nationalist, entrepreneur. Levi was different. He had no peers or brothers beside him when he was called, and yet he went on to evangelize Persia, as I've said, and to write a gospel. And I just wonder how many Levi's are in the house today who have been hearing the voice of God repeatedly, and by giving you these six questions, I've given you diagnostic tools to help clarify that which the voice has been speaking to you, maybe for months, possibly for years, for some of the older ones, maybe even for decades. Well, if you're a Levi, today is the day to heed the call, join the party, and embrace the future. It's time to get in the game. Amen.